So whatever we're studying or meditating on or contemplating, it's important to generate our bodhicitta motivation and to see how what we're going to meditate or study uh, relates to bodhicitta. Okay, so it's important to see how all the different aspects of the path, all the different um, virtuous minds that we need to cultivate, all come together in bodhicitta, which then motivates us to generate the wisdom realizing emptiness which is what actually brings the realizations of the higher paths. So in this case, we're going to be learning about Chapter 4 of Bodhicharya-Vatara, which deals very much with ethical conduct. And you see that ethical conduct is the basis for generating bodhicitta. And it's not that you generate ethical conduct, say, got that, been there, done that. Now forget about it and let's go on and generate bodhicitta and wisdom. It's not like that because pratimoksha precepts that ethical conduct relates to our study of the four truths. The bodhisattva precepts relates to our study and practice of bodhicitta and wisdom. And the tantric precepts uh, relate to that practice as well. So all throughout the path, there's an emphasis on ethical conduct. And so with an intention to learn ethical conduct well in order to generate bodhicitta and the wisdom knowing reality, then we'll listen to the teachings this morning. So when you really think about ethical conduct, uh, it's related to so many different topics on the path. Um, In the division of the three higher trainings, ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom, ethical conduct is the first one. Yeah, so we have to get a good foundation in that to generate concentration. Now, you might say, well, why? You know, I want to meditate and learn how to concentrate. Well, what interferes with our concentration? Okay, attachment, anger, restlessness, remorse. Okay, 
All of these things, if we look, relate to ethical conduct because the these are the mental factors that disturb our concentration are the same ones that motivate us to act unethically. Yeah? So when you see that connection, then you see really if you want to work on concentration, you have to be able to calm your mind from those very gross afflictions that motivate the very gross non-virtues. Okay. And then as we practice more and more, understanding the, the subtler levels of, con- of afflictions and keeping the subtler levels of precepts, you know, and then that aids our concentration. So we also see that ethical conduct is very much related to uh, identifying the, uh, the uh, afflictions in our mind and learning the uh, antidotes to those afflictions. Okay, So ethical conduct is not just about keeping rules. Yeah. It's not just about keeping rules. It's because to to keep the guidelines and the precepts, we have to look at our mind because the mind, the speech and the body don't operate unless the mind motivates them. Okay? So uh, to keep a good ethical conduct, we have to not only study what the afflictions are so that we know what they are, why they're non-virtuous, and how they function, but especially to be able to identify them in our own experience. Because we can know all about them and give a wonderful talk all about the precepts, or all about the, the uh, afflictions, and then if we don't notice them in our own mind, uh, then our behavior is uh, cattywampus, <laughs> right? Yeah? And we're, we're just, uh, you know, crazy. Crazy under the influence of the afflictions. But identifying what's virtuous and non-virtuous, knowing the afflictions, identifying them in our experience, that still isn't sufficient. We need to learn the counteracting forces and then apply them. Okay? So really to, to learn, you know, what it, uh, the counteracting force to each affliction. So when it arises, we know what to do. Yeah. And I'm always struck by um, people, uh, I, I get many emails from people and uh, asking for advice, and often the advice they're asking for is what to do in a certain situation or how to handle a certain problem. And I know that these people have heard the antidotes and the teachings. But they don't think when they have the problem, oh, what is the, you know, 
What is the affliction and what is the antidote to it? Yeah. And then even when we do remember the antidote, we expect to apply the antidote one time and then the affliction just goes away. Okay. And it's not like that. When you think that our afflictions have been around since beginningless time, we have a lot of habitual energy going in that direction. So, you know, practicing the antidote once isn't going to go, whammo, there it goes. Yeah. Um, but we have to have continual practice. You know, that's why it's called practice. Yeah, practice in, it, it implies repetition, familiarization. Okay? So that's really important. Uh, so many of you, I've told you, you know about my experience of being the um, disciplinarian of, and of the uh, macho Italian monks and the, um, the spiritual coordinator for the Dharma Center at the same time. And after that, when I finally left and I went back to India, I went into retreat. And I was so angry. You know, I had no idea before that experience living there that I had that much anger. You know, and then it's like, there was like, I really saw my anger quite vividly. I went into retreat and I spent... It was a deity retreat, but I actually spent most of the retreat time trying to calm my anger. And I would notice, I would do a session, apply the antidotes, get myself kind of, okay, get up from the session. And then the moment I thought of my experience in Italy, I'd get angry again. And then in the next session, meditate on the antidotes. Get a little bit calmer. Get up from the session. Get angry again. Okay? But, and so I did this for three months. It was a three-month retreat. Actually, maybe it might have even been longer. But, you know, that's what you have to do. And it's not that after a three-month retreat, then my anger was all gone, as you all know. Yeah, anger hangs around for a while, you know, like a long while. So, <laughs> so you know, we really have to put our energy into this. Okay? So that's one thing. Then, different, slightly different topic, but very related is last time I talked about integrity and how important integrity and consideration for others are, and then conscientiousness, which is the mind that values ethical conduct. Okay, and I gave some examples from current events because current events to me are current and you know there it is right in front of your nose for you to deal with so um as you may know we are in the middle of the second impeachment of Donald Trump and uh the uh just within the the they've had two days so far today is the third day okay 
So we also know from uh, the first day was about deciding uh, whether it was constitutional to impeach him or not. And the uh, evidence, you know, produced by the the house managers, it was very, very clear. They had all sorts of historical things to, to show that, yes, it's completely constitutional. Um, Trump's lawyers uh, didn't make a very good argument saying that it's not. Okay, so then you had uh, six Republicans vote with the Democrats to say that it was constitutional. So those six went counter to the general feeling in their own power party. So one was Liz Cheney, okay, Dick Cheney, former vice president's daughter, who's a senator from Wyoming. Uh huh. Liz Cheney. She's in the she's in the house. Yes, but the the house is um, when the house voted for. Oh, I'm sorry. She she's a representative. She's not a senator. But anyway, she voted when she as part of the house vote on impeachment. You know, in this way, and she she you know still believes that that it is constitutional. Ben Sass, um, or Sasse, I'm not sure how his name is pronounced. He's from Nebraska, Nebraska right. And he also, uh, he's a senator, and he voted that way. Well, both of them uh, got censored by the Republican parties in their own states. So Republicans censoring Republicans because they didn't like their vote. They wanted them to, uh, to vote for acquitting Trump. And both of them, um, you know, I personally differ a lot on political philosophy, ideas from them. But I respect both of them very, very much especially Liz Cheney. She got hammered so badly uh, in her state, by, or by her state, and she didn't budge at all. She knew what's harmful, what's beneficial. She made her decision, and even though she knows that she could be primaried, she could be voted out of office, she stuck with what she knew was ethical. You know, regardless of the personal consequences she would have to experience. So I really admire that. The same thing from Ben Sass. I mean, his own Republican Party in Nebraska censored him and threatened to primary him and so on. And he still stuck up for it. So I think these are very good examples that we see in current events of people who are willing to sacrifice what benefits them personally or what benefits even their own, well, I don't know that it benefits their own party, but what their party thinks would benefit them um, for the sake of 
the country for the sake of the world. Yeah? And so this is the kind of inner strength that I think the Buddha wants us to have when we practice, you know. And we know that it's hard very often uh, to uh, work against the, the afflictions and to keep the precepts well. And we can watch our minds sometimes invent all sorts of reasons why doing the opposite to the, to the precept is actually virtuous. You know, and, you know, we can spin good stories for our own mind. Uh, and it's tough to combat the afflictions. But this is what, um, bre- you know, makes us have inner strength. And what, uh, and it's the integrity and the consideration for others that, uh, you know, is behind that, that sustains that. Okay? So just to think about and, and see the examples of actual people doing it versus the example of people, there were uh, a couple, or more than a couple, but just a few um, people, Republicans, yesterday when they were showing very vivid uh, images a video of the assault on the Capitol uh, that had that people hadn't seen before because it was from the security cameras inside the Capitol. And um, one senator, Josh Howley, was up in the gallery um, reading, shuffling papers and reading things. Rand Paul was doodling. Um, so they weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. Yeah. Other people had just said their mind was made up. And so, although it was very forceful to them, emotional to them, they had decided before. Okay. Now, this is very contrary. They didn't take a vote yesterday, so they're not think sure. But this is very contrary. There was another senator that I really, really respect, uh, and because they took a vote on Tuesday. He's a Republican senator, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana. He voted uh, and said, yes, it, it was constitutional to try uh, somebody who was no longer in office. They interviewed him and said, why did you do this, you know, because he's bucking his party, and he's subsequently gotten criticized for it. And he said, and this is what I really respect, he said, when I took the oath to be a senator and when I took the oath to be a juror for this trial, part of it was to be an impartial juror. And I took that seriously, that I need to be impartial. And one side presented a very good argument, saying it was constitutional. The other side, their argument was flimsy. So as an impartial jurist, I voted for the side whose argument was very strong. Yeah. So again, look, that somebody with really good 
you know, ethical conduct. Who knows that when he goes to sleep at night, he can sleep peacefully because he kept the, the vow he took when he became a senator. Yeah. And so, you know, this is pertaining to politicians, but we all have things in our lives that are analogous to this. So to, um, you know, I find thinking of this, you know, really helps me in my practice. Also thinking of the people during the Second World War who hid Jews, you know, at their own risk. Uh, and how dangerous it was for them to do that. So, uh, you know, these people, I've, you know, ever since I was a kid, I've always looked at and, and thought, you know, these are, are what real respectable people are. And wondered, can I, could I do that in a situation with so much personal danger. I mean, in World War II, they would get killed if it was found out what they were doing. With the senators, they get censored, you know. But, um, yeah, it's just something to, to think about and to build up our own internal courage uh, and our own, yet our courage to, to do what we know is right. Not to be brave on a battlefield, which I look at and I say, that's not creating virtue. <laughs> you know, we need to be brave in creating virtue. And Shanti Deva will point that out to us very vid- vividly in some of the verses that we're coming to. So uh, we were on, uh, we finished chapter four, I mean, verse four in chapter four. Verse 24, <laughs> chapter 4. <laughs> Too many fours. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, here he's in the section. We haven't completed that section, but uh, Shantideva has been talking about the disadvantages of uh, not being conscientious, you know, and what happens and lower rebirth and how difficult it is once you're born in a lower rebirth to create the virtue uh, needed to have an upper rebirth. And then even in, in this lifetime, how uh, the, the disadvantages that come from not being conscientious. And then saying, you know, when we have a precious human life and it's taken us so long to create the causes and so much effort to take the causes, to create the causes for this opportunity we have right now, not to throw it away by just, uh, you know, following the instructions of the afflictions, because the afflictions, by and large, are directed towards the happiness of only this life. Yeah, the afflictions are so narrow. Yeah, and we think our life is long. We think, you know, maybe you live... There's uh, there's one nun who uh, in Europe who just survived COVID, and today she turned 117 years old. Wow. 117, and she survived COVID. Okay, so we may think, wow, that's a long life. She's blind, 
she does her prayers every day. She's in a wheelchair. She keeps practicing. And uh, Sister Andre is her name. So she, uh, we may say that's a long life, but when you think of beginningless time, 117 years is nothing. And who says we're even going to make it until that? Okay, chances are we won't. We'll die much you know, younger than that. So why we have this opportunity to really try and take advantage of it and not waste all the energy that we put into um, creating the causes for this life in, in previous lives. Okay? So this thinking like this involves a big shift in our worldview. Okay? And this is really key to being a Buddhist, is that we adopt a very different worldview. And this takes some time, depending on how entrenched we are in the view. And I'm just talking, you know, just our general view on life, you know. If we think of only this life or if we think of more than this life, yeah. If we think only of this life, the Buddhist worldview doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And it becomes very difficult to practice because when we think only of this life, what is most important to us? The happiness of this life. Yeah. If you don't think about future lives, you're not going to work consider your happiness in future lives. You know, you're only going to think about, okay, I want to have a really good job in this life, you know, and I want to work my way up and be famous and, you know, well-known, well-respected in the field I work with. I want to have a lot of money, you know. I want to have, you know, people who love me and surround me with support and tell me how wonderful I am. You know, I want to have fun and go travel and do all these things. And, you know, sitting and working with my afflictions, that's difficult. That's hard. You know, why should I counteract my anger? My anger is justified because these people harm me. And any sane person would want to retaliate. My greed is good because my greed will get me what I want and make me happy. Yeah, why should I give up being attached to things? And the people I care about, they are really wonderful. They're much better than other people. My attachment to them is really good because they are really the most wonderful people. Okay? And that's how we think and that's how the world thinks, you know? And so the whole force of your upbringing, your family, your culture, is telling you the happiness of this life, isn't it? You know? And then you come to Buddhism, and you're in this small group, and there's somebody saying, check up if that's really true. 
And your first thing is, what is this person saying? They're telling me to give up everything I've lived my whole life for up until now. Why should I give this up? I was going in the right direction. I was successful. I was making money. I was getting promoted. You know, I had this wonderful relationship. It was all going so well. And what are you talking about? Caring about future lives more than this life. You know, are you out of your mind? Okay. That, isn't that true? Isn't that how you think when you first meet the Dharma? It's like, uh, th- this is utter, you know, craziness. And then, you know, you, you say, well, but those people who, you know, the Dalai Lama, he looks like a happy person. <laughs> and he believes this kind of stuff, you know? And you meet some of the other teachers and like, well, they believe this, and they're, they don't look like unhappy, miserable people. And you know what? The people who I know who are working just for the happiness of this life, they have more problems than these people who think about future lives and who think about enlightenment. Because the people who, you know, are just, um, you know, involved in the happiness of this life, I mean, they're so worried about their reputation. They're so worried about not having enough money. And no matter how much money you make, you never have enough to feel completely secure. And they have so many relationship problems. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't believe that people have relationship problems, just listen to your friends and what they talk about, yeah? And and then you go, well, wait a minute, you know? There's what I believe, you know, where I've been acculturated and going, and then the evidence of what I'm seeing with my own eyes doesn't support what I've been taught and the direction I'm going in. So there's disharmony. It's like your nails on a blackboard when there used to be blackboards. Okay. I don't know if it works with, with whiteboards now. Yeah. So it's, it's that thing of, you know, there's like, what, what I want to work for the happiness of this life. And then there's, but the people who work for other things, they look happier. And it's like, you know, and you have an internal civil war. And then, you know, if you keep going from there and you keep practicing, as they say, truth always wins out in the long run. And sometimes it's a long run. Sometimes it takes many lifetimes to get there. Yeah. But in the end, when you really spend the time thinking about this, It's like, oh, okay, you know, got to shift directions here. And then, you know, then you have to deal with all the attachment to the happiness of this life and all those afflictions that are pulling you to just think about, I want what I want when I want it, yeah, which is 
our brand in samsara, isn't it? It's our samsaric brand. I want what I want when I want it. And the universe owes it to me. And I'm going to fight to get it. You know? I mean, these days, all the politicians, everything, even people who aren't politicians, everybody is talking about fighting all the activists. We're going to fight for this and fight for that. How about we're going to work towards that? Why does everything have to be a fight? Okay. Well, Shantideva, in some ways, you know, he uses, as we'll see if if I ever get to come to the verses, (laughs) you know, he uses the analogy of soldiers on the battlefield fighting. And, you know, that we have to fight with our afflictions. So I don't know if that is an analogy that appeals more to men. I don't know many women who like the analogy of being soldiers and fighting for things. I don't know. What do you think, guys? I actually don't like the imagery of fighting. That always made me uncomfortable when I first heard it. It was I had to fight afflictions. I was like, wait, but I want to get rid of that (laughs) tendency. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's more like a mother-child relationship. It's like Mm. to be gentle with myself. Mm. But a mother is gentle, but she she gets to doing what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if the women like the the um the fighting analogy, you like it? Yeah, you like it. Okay, so a few a few of the women like it. Yeah. It's just always you made made me wonder about that. But anyway, whatever Oh, sorry, I forgot about you. <laughs> Once you become ordained, you kind of lose your gender. <laughs> so Yeah, I'm not I'm not real big on being hung up on gender actually, but um I find it I find it sad when I hear all these um references to battle and stuff in the in the scriptures. Not because I don't think they should be there, but just because it brings to mind how much most cultures have had this and it's just part of samsara and it's you know it's just so sad that people have that attitude you know hack each other up and stuff and back then it was swords but now it's i got to have my guns (laughs) i think it's very very sad and you know perhaps this sense the, the reason it's used is to take something sad in samsara and as an analogy for something that, you know, if done correctly, can be helpful in your practice. But if done incorrectly in, in your practice, you wind up beating yourself up. Like, oh, I have these afflictions, how bad I am. A gentleman said, the analogy of the battle is helpful to me because I can generate strength and confidence based on it. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, people's minds work in different ways. So it's, it's interesting to, to think about that. Okay, but 
it'll it'll come up here. Okay, so let's get to verse 25. So uh, again, talking about the disadvantages of following the afflictions and not being conscientious. Then if my body blazes for a long time in the unbearable flames of hell, inevitably my mind will be tormented by the fires of unendurable remorse. So the body is in pain, and at that time, the person recognizes what are the causes of me being born here and experiencing this pain. And then they see, oh, it was my own actions, my own karma. I got myself into this mess. And then that's uh, when the fires of unendurable remorse come. Okay. So like I was saying last week, I've always had this strong feeling of I don't want to die with remorse. Yeah. So as best as we can to keep on top of things. And we make mistakes, but if we learn from our mistakes, then at the time of death, we don't have remorse for them. Because we know that in the end, we use them for something good. Yeah. So I, I know when I, I first met the Dharma, I, was, I met the Dharma when I was 24 and ordained when I was 26. And I, I thought, oh my goodness, I wasted so many years, you know. I, I had so much samsara behind me, my goodness. Um, samsara galore. And it's like, I just wasted that time. And, and, uh, and I felt some remorse for it. But, you know, after going back, you know, and looking at everything that I did and why I did it and what the results it brought in this life and what the results it would bring in future lives, Okay, then I actually began to, uh, I, I, the, I, I had remorse for the negativities, but I didn't have regret that I had those experiences. Because having had those experiences showed me the disadvantages of following those uh, afflictions and getting involved in that. And that, you know, what I learned from going through all my samsara actually, I think, has helped me in my practice because now when certain afflictions come up, I go, boom, but I remember when I followed that galore, you know, before I met the Dharma, it doesn't work, drop it, <laughs> okay? And the same, too, with, uh, you know, suffering experiences. Like when I talk about what happened in Italy, I'm glad that happened now. Because if that didn't happen, I would never have recognized how much anger I had. And then I never would have, you know, kind of studied chapter six of this book, which we will get to one day. And, uh, you know... So to be able to, to really uh, learn from our mistakes 
and not stay stuck in, oh, I created so much negativity, how bad I am, because that state of mind does, is of absolutely no benefit. Yeah. Not only does do do I um, have that real the understanding that you know it's kind of like realizing drinking salt water and then realizing it do, <laughs> doesn't quench your thirst. Yeah. Not only do I have that aspect with that, but I also when I see other people under the influence of those same emotions doing those things, I have more connection and understanding of them because I've done that. Yeah. And so in that sense, I'm glad that I had those kind yeah. of experiences. Yeah, because yeah. so. it stops us from judging those people and helps us to have compassion for them. Yeah, and I have to have something to keep me from being judgmental because <laughs> it comes up and then I go to that to, to yeah. counter it. Yeah. Okay, 26, having found by some coincidence this beneficial state that is so hard to find, if now I able to discriminate, I once again am led into the hells. Then, as though I were hypnotized by a spell, I shall, be redu I shall reduce this mind to nothing. Even I do not know what is causing me this confusion. What is there dwelling inside me? Okay, so having found by some coincidence this beneficial state that is so hard to find, here we have this precious human life. Here we have all the incredible conditions, external conditions to be able to practice internal conditions to be able to practice. And it's such a remarkable state that we live in that it seems like it happened by coincidence because how in the world did somebody like me ever create the causes for this? You know? How, yeah, how could somebody as ignorant as I ever create these causes? So it's really got to be like a coincidence, you know? But of course it's not. Yeah. Um, but we found this beneficial state so hard to find. So having that behind us, if now, while being able to discriminate between what is virtuous, what is non-virtuous, what benefits myself and others, what harms myself and others. Because benefiting and harming, it isn't a choice between it benefits to, to benefit me, it's got to harm others. And if I benefit others, it's harming myself. But when we really understand karma, and when we have a bodhicitta motivation, we see that when we act in a non-virtuous way, we harm ourselves by sending ourselves to, to the lower realms. But we harm sentient beings in this life right now. And we harm them in the future by, uh, in, in samsara, by perpetuating that habit of the affliction and by putting off our own awakening, you know, and, and big opportunity to, uh, to help them. 
And then we see when we benefit others, we also benefit ourselves because we create good karma. We advance on the path. Okay? So it isn't a choice between, you know, well, if I'm going to benefit myself, then I got to, you know, you know, when when push comes to shove, I'm going to harm others. But when we really understand karma, that, you know, when we create virtue, it helps both ourselves and others. When we create non-virtue, it harms both ourselves and others. Yeah? It's not either or. So these kinds of things, you know, it ta- we need to really contemplate them over time. Not just listen to teachings, but really think about it and make examples in our lives. And then that way, you know, our, our heart, our mind begins to shift. Yeah. So if having this situation and I have the ability to discriminate virtue and, and non-virtue, harm and benefit... I am once I once again lead myself into the hells by listening to the afflictions instead of listening to my wisdom. If I do that once again, then it's like I were hypnotized by a spell. Yeah? It's like somebody did abracadabra and I was in a daze and I couldn't see anything clearly. Yeah, like my mind were just totally, you know, obscured and not not able to see anything clearly. Yeah, and in that state, I shall reduce this mind to nothing, meaning my potential is not going to be is going to be inaccessible to me. And my virtue that I've accumulated, I'll ignore. You know, I'll reduce this mind, I'll reduce my heart to being, you know, I'll become hard-hearted. I'll become completely obscured. I'll become unable to discern what is virtuous and non-virtuous. I will act just like those people who I don't respect. Yeah? And sometimes when you think about it, you know, do I want to act just like those people I don't respect? Yeah? I mean, think of somebody whose behavior, because it's not so much the person, the person has the Buddha nature, but think of somebody whose behavior you do not respect. And then imagine yourself going through life acting like that. And then other people reacting to you like people react to, you know, those deeds. And what would that be like? And how would I feel with myself if I acted like that? Okay, so I shall reduce this mind-heart to nothing. And then Shanti Deva says, Even I do not know what is causing me confusion. What is there dwelling inside me? Okay, so here it is. 
This, this is where we are very often. It's like, I've read this. Shanti Deva, what you say, makes perfect ex sense to me. I really want to fight my afflictions. I really want to, you know, be able to identify them. I don't want to follow a non-virtuous path. And then what do I do on a daily basis? I'm jealous of this person. I'm angry at that person. I make bad decisions. Yeah, I don't repay people's kindness. I blame people for what's my own problem. You know, I have this, these, uh, this way that I want to live and I can't do it. Yeah. Oh, and this is terrible because, you know, now I know in Buddhism, you know, before when I was really ignorant, I didn't know that all this behavior was going to harm others and send me to the lower realms. Now I know that. So it's even worse. And I'm still doing the same stupid dashios. You know, what in the world has gotten into me? Oh, that's another one my mother used to say. <laughs> yeah. I can't, you know, I should start writing these down. I don't, you know, but did your mother say that? What in the world has gotten into you? Yeah. You look at how you're, what in the world has gotten into you, young lady? Did your mother, your mothers didn't call you young lady. Did they call you young man? How did they do? Yeah. What, what was the, the or I don't know, maybe your father was the disciplinarian in my family, it was the mother. But, you know, young whatever, maybe they didn't even call you young whatever, they called you, mm, I can't say it, um, you know. But it's a good question, and we, we're at a point where we have to ask ourselves that. What in the world has gotten into me? What was I thinking when I did that? Yeah. So you can see Shanti Deva is explaining his own process. So when you start thinking like this yourself, don't blame yourself for being bad. You see, Shanti Deva went through this same thing, and he came out the other end of it as Shanti Deva. And boy, I would like to be like him. Yeah. Okay. He's one of my heroes. <laughs> okay. So what is there dwelling inside me that I'm acting like? What has gotten into me? Okay. So then Shantideva starts looking and, you know, saying, uh, yeah, what's gotten into me, you know? And so verse 28, he says, Although enemies such as hatred and craving have neither any arms nor legs and are neither courageous nor wise, how have I, like a slave, been used for them by them? Yeah. So here, my real enemies, you know, not the external enemies. Yeah, because we'll come to it. External enemies cannot really harm us the same way internal enemies do. And external enemies, the most they can do 
is take away this life. Yeah. They can tell us to go to hell all they want, but they cannot send us there. Okay. What sends us to the lower realms? Our own afflictions. So the real enemies are these afflictions that that dwell in our mind. They harm us so much more than any external enemy could ever harm us. Yeah? So enemies such as hatred, okay, anger, resentment, belligerence, okay, spite, maliciousness. There's so many varieties, you know, that are summed up in in the word hatred or anger, okay? And do you see them in your own mind? Yeah? Do you see even, you know, do we see even when irritation starts? Irritation is often the beginning of it. It's like, why did they look at me that way? Yeah. Why is this object still here? For anybody who's looking for the isopropyl alcohol and the rag on top of it, I moved it into that closet because somebody left it out here for a really long time. So if you're looking for it, there it is. Okay. So it starts with, why did they leave the isopropyl alcohol and a dirty rag out here? doesn't belong here. Okay. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you uh, get irritated by things like that? Yeah. <laughs> if I had known who had left it, I would have put it on their seat. But I didn't know who left it there. Next time, please put your name on it, okay? (laughs) When you leave things lying around, you know. In the olden days, you know, I I could identify whose stuff was, and I just threw it out on the on the um, the grass, yeah, on the field. Um, Okay, so you know, to see the maliciousness, the hatred, the judgment you know, in our mind, yeah, and really see where that takes us, and craving, you know, and to see why, why, you know, these are enemies, and why is craving an enemy? Well, I'm dissatisfied when I have craving, but when I get what I want, Oh, it's so good, and I have so much self-confidence because I got what I wanted, and look how good I am. (laughs) Yeah? So what's the disadvantage of craving? Yeah? Well, look how craving makes you look at the world. You know? And look how... Anger makes you look at the world. It colors everything. Our our whole lens that we view life through is what pleases me and what displeases me. 
what makes me feel good, what makes me feel bad. And what makes me feel good, I crave it. And I'm going to get it. And what's extremely interesting, and I know people don't like me always talking about politics, but I watched the uh, the uh, thing, what's going on in the Senate yesterday. And it was such a meditation for me in terms of what craving does to the mind and how blind we are and how we don't care who we hurt in order to get what we want. We don't care about, you know, the the democracy that we've been trying to live in accord to, what they call the great American experiment, you know. But, you know, we, we just dismiss that. That goes out the window if we want something bad enough. I don't care the effect it has on the rest of the country, on the rest of the world. I want this. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And they laid it out. I mean, I had never seen it laid out this clearly before. You know, exactly what happened. All the steps that had been going on for months, for years, actually, you know, beginning with the 19, uh, the 2016 election. Remember, we were told even then it was rigged. Even then. And how that built up over four years, you know, completely uh, what they're calling the big lie, that whole people's lives got engulfed in. And now many of the people who were at, uh, you know, entered the Capitol, they are perplexed why they're getting arrested. As you see, they never, they didn't wear masks. They took videos and posted it online. They had the, the idea that they were the big patriots, that the former president would protect them, that what they were doing is good. They had no, that's how much they were befuddled and, and tricked and deceived by one person's craving. Yeah. And how they were groomed over years that led to that. And then uh, really seeing the effect of what happened in the Capitol. I think for many of the uh, um, people that were there, seeing some of these videos that they, you know, because they were in the Senate or in the House, and except for the the people in the gallery of, of the House, um, 
they they didn't really encounter the 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 people who were rioting. They got whisked away to you know wherever the, the safe places were for them. Yeah, mostly, and then there you know they've seen some things on online because it was all over the internet. But yesterday, some of the things they showed, some, for some of of the the people, they realized how close they were. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe I should stop here. People don't like me talking about this as a part of a Dharma teacher. You want me to go on? I can tell you about this afterwards if you want. Okay, I'll go on. So you made me do it. So, so nobody online criticized me. They made me do it. I'm not responsible. But just, you know, so there was one video of, um, you know, Chuck Schumer and his, the, his bodyguards going one direction trying to get away from the rioters. They round a corner and then they turn back and come back immediately because the mob was coming towards them. They ran to the end of the corridor and uh, not to the end, to the middle of the corridor. There were some doors. They went through the doors. Then the police shut the doors behind them to keep the mob from getting to them. That's how close they were. Yeah. Vice President Pence, yeah, the room that they took him to was a hundred, he was in, when he was in that room, he was a hundred feet away from the mob. And one door leading to that room was even closer. I forget how many feet. It was it was 58 feet or something. Very close. Only a wall, only a door. And those people were so angry. I mean, the videos really showed what happens when people get angry totally enraged. I mean, if they had gotten to Pence, they would have killed him, for sure. They were going through the halls, you know, saying, Nancy, where are you, Nancy? I mean, they would have killed her, for sure. Yeah. There was another one of Mitt Romney, you know, who, again, is going in one direction, going down this way. And um, Charles Goodman, the, the uh, officer who helped some, who was noted before for helping so much during the riots because he directed the people away from the Senate, he was running towards Romney and told him to go in a different direction and got him into a room where he was safe. Again, right before the, you know, they were so close. That was where the 58 feet were, maybe, you know. So that's how close. And those people were so angry, they would have killed anybody because they were mad at the whole government at that point, you know. A lot of them were, and it, it came out uh, this morning. I mean, I'm just showing you, telling you the effects of what Shantideva mentions here, hatred and craving, Okay. There was the thing this morning of one of the uh, the oath keepers because they're being investigated for having planned this, and one of the the leaders um, it was a woman, remarkably. She maybe not so remarkably uh, 
in one of the emails she wrote back in December, okay, back in December, was, uh, you know, I don't know if this is true. It might be, it might be a, a big setup for us, but w- we'll wait. And if POTUS tells us to move, we'll do it because we know that it's coming from him. And then more, you know, came out. And, you know, what, what they, they did is they didn't have to make many arguments. They just took all the tweets that we've all been reading and linked them together and showed one tweet after the other showing, you know, what was the motivation? What do you want people to do here? What you want people to do there? And then... You know, five people got killed. Two police officers committed suicide afterward. That one's just really is horrible to think about. You know, 140 officers are were injured, some of them with brain damage and spinal damage, and one's going to maybe lose his eye. And then the whole country going, what in the world happened? You know? I thought we, you know, a peaceful transition of power was guaranteed to us. And it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, they were, wanted to take over the electoral process and throw democracy out the window and appoint the person who didn't want to leave office. You know, and you think this is such a good example of this. And then you think in previous lives, I've done the same thing. When my hatred and craving have been out of control, I've harmed people in a similar way. So watching this happen right now in front of me, other people doing it, this is a teaching for me about what I need to avoid, you know, because it's so blatant. And I don't want to even do this on a small scale. Yeah. Even in the office I work in, I don't want to break people into factions. I don't want to become buddies with some people in the office because we all share the same dislike of somebody else. This happens in offices all the time, doesn't it? You know, how do you bond together? Because you sit and gossip about how terrible somebody else is. Okay. And you realize that state of mind, that behavior, it's just in my office, but it's the same mental state that somebody who has a lot of power has, and that this is what it leads to. And I don't want to do this. Yeah, and so how fortunate I am to be able to see this now before I've harmed so many beings and and work on this state of mind so I don't do this to other people. Yeah, and part of helping me not to do it in the future is to do purification. And who knows what I've done in the past. They say we've done everything, 
But, you know, so I don't remember what I did in the past, but whenever I did anything that remotely resembled this kind of thing, I regret it. I'm making a strong determination to deal with that mind to not do this kind of behavior again. Yeah? And and then then you learn from what, what you see around you. As painful as it is, I mean, watching those videos, it was, it was not, it's hard. Probably some of you have seen the one of the police officer who was squashed between the doors. I'm not talking to you people because you're not online, but the people, you know, on the other end of the camera, you've seen that. It's horrible to watch. One police officer was squished in a door frame and he's screaming out in pain as the the people in the mob are like trying to rip off his his helmet and rip everything off. I mean, it was terrible, this poor man. And you know, and you say, this is what my afflictions make me do. Okay. And so, okay, it's the it's the people in the mob who are doing that. But they were incited. And how tricky our afflictions are that we can go up to the limit of, you know, and then claim, but I didn't mean any harm. I didn't tell them to, you know, put that police officer's head, slam it between a, uh, door frame and make him shriek. I didn't, I have nothing to do with that. Yeah. I mean, this is how sneaky our mind is. We give the blame to somebody else. Yeah. So I guess I can't blame you for having me talk about it's not politics. It's not politics, is it? It's life. It's life. Okay. So, this is, you know, we have to ask ourselves, like, when we do our own mini little things to manipulate and create factions and turn people against each other, you know, what? How can I need to stop that? Yeah. And how these pictures and videos and um, yeah, information is spread into the world. I was thinking in Germany last year there was a storm towards the Bundestag as well, but they couldn't get into the building. Um, mm. So how that may have set an example, you know, um, how we affect each other with this kind of. Um, media um, culture we are living in. Yes, yeah. It seems that the afflictions always have some kind of self-deception involved. And that's why they're so sometimes so hard to identify is yes. because it's either neutral or it's virtuous. And yeah, it's just, it's amazing yeah. how convincing that they can be. Yeah. And the, 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 the trick, the key way they deceive us is this 
is for your own benefit now in this life. That's one of the key ways they just, the first big way. There's more subtler ways too as we progress along the path. But this is the first big way of, you know, but this is good for you in this life. It'll make you happy. It'll protect you. And we, we self-grasping ignorance, self-centered thought. I think it's important to share what craving does to not only yourself, but to others. One person's craving over four years took millions along. Yes, exactly. And now those millions feel deceived. Yeah. And, and some of them, especially the people who followed Q- QAnon, were in total shock when the inauguration actually happened because they had been told and were convinced even that at, you know, that Biden wouldn't be inaugurated, the military would take over, and then Trump would come back and be president. And they interviewed even one man the morning of the inauguration who said, I know this sounds silly, but I think that's really what's going to happen this morning, you know? And then he, you know, when it didn't happen, this guy and all those QAnon people were like, but, 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 this is what they told me was going to happen. This is what I believed was going to happen. Yeah. So they're having to work it out somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Difficult. Yeah, difficult when you trust and then it's been broken. Okay. So that's the first line of that verse. Any other? (laughs) Maybe we should do a question and answer. I don't know if I'll be able to even finish the verse now. Right. One of the things that I, I keep thinking about, too, is the, the power of of that lie. I mean, whatever whatever sense of rage or whatever those people had, it's, I mean, they believed. They believed something that they were told. Millions of people believed something that they were told. Yeah. And, and hundreds of people, and maybe thousands, supported the lie, knowing that it was a lie. So there's, I mean, the, this too, in terms of understanding how how one thing leads to another, leads to another, brings in another thing, and like, well, like clouds gathering together in yeah. in, a, in the negative sense. How how many small things yes. create such a huge, huge misunderstanding and and harm? Yep, it's mind boggling. Because it's not just one person. It's all the people that, like you said, knew it was a lie, but because it will benefit them personally, went along with the lie. Yeah. And, yeah. And it starts out small and it grows. 
Yeah. So when we hear in the Vinaya about monastics advising or admonishing others, this is what it's getting to. When we see somebody, one of our Dharma friends, starting to go down the slippery slope, that we say to them, hey, you know, check up what's, what's going on in your mind and what you're doing. And I know for myself, because, like you said, our mind can be so tricky. Yeah? That if I start going down some slippery slope, I want all of you to, to you know, you can start tapping me on the shoulder. You might have to slap my face, you know, to, to like, okay, what, what in the world am I doing? You know? And so that's how we help each other practice the Dharma. You know, and that those are real friends, the people who tell us when we're making a mistake. Yeah, the people who flatter us. <laughs> it's so nice to get flattery and, and, you know, but we go along with it. Yeah. General, genuine praise is good. It's nice to know that we're able to benefit others or that people appreciate what we do. That's no reason to become arrogant because we only are able to do that because other people taught us. Yeah. But especially when we know we're flattering to get what we want. Yeah. That's or when we go along with flattery. Yeah. You want me to do something? All you have to do is tell me how wonderful I am and I lose all my wisdom and I will do whatever you want me to do. All you know, all, all you have to do is either flatter me or threaten me. Threaten something that I'm attached to and I will capitulate and, you know, do whatever you want. Hmm? Go on. That's the other side of, of, of the puzzle is that generally all of us are so gullible because we're so desperately looking for security or stability or a savior or something to make things better. And if you tell me that I'm going to make it, that I'm going to make it better for you and I don't have my wisdom in place and then I'll follow you anywhere until yep. So, so I don't know. There's so many sides of, of, of this, that, mm -hmm. that of how our minds deceive us, that's yeah. a piece of it, is the gullibility. Right. Right. And that pertains a lot. You talk a lot about Germany, you know, and what happened before the first war, the Second World War, and this is, yeah, same thing. Same thing. Yeah. And it says, is this collective karma, craving in my mind becomes craving in others, interconnected. Each, each person creates their own mind, uh, their own karma through their craving. But when we are together in craving and acting together, that becomes the, the collective karma, meaning that we will experience a result, you know, together in some way. Yeah. Anything else? 
Okay, then let's dedicate. Oh, so we did three verses again this time. We're really moving along here. (laughs) 